Well, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Nathan read the passage for us, and I have been looking forward to this passage all week. And um, while I enjoy Ecclesiastes greatly, Philippians is, uh, is a breath of gospel air as as uh, you probably are, are aware. The theme is Christ and the selfless joy that comes through serving Him. And He is the topic every Christian should, should delight in. And as we've been working through the book of Philippians, as I laid it out for you to begin with, there are nine parts, and we've just moved into the fourth section, which carries us really to the foothills of one of the most Christ-exalting passages in all of the Bible. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this attitude in you, which is also found in Christ Jesus. And it goes through his condescension and then culminates in his exaltation where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because of our Lord's humility, the Father will exalt him above all, all things. And Paul started with his gracious greeting, and then he taught us about thankful prayer. He relayed to the Philippians and us his challenging circumstances, and now he comes to these Christ-like exhortations, these, these commands. He's exhorting us, prodding us to do some specific things. And, and upon completing that, that report, he now makes some earnest appeals the link between chapter 1 and Paul's challenging circumstances of being imprisoned and these exhortations in chapter 2 is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says we've all been made partakers of the same mercy, we all have the same master, so we're all exhorted to live in the same way. As we saw last week, it's a gospel worthy life. And the gospel not only changes why you live, but how you live. In fact, this whole section starts with the word only. Look at Philippians 1.27. This is what we looked at last week. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of, of Christ. Only worthy of the gospel of Christ is how it reads in the, in the original. And so last time, the Apostle Paul showed us what a gospel-worthy life looked like outside of the church. You're, you're to, to live a life that... That, that not only encourages you, but, but also puts to shame those who are outside. They, it strikes fear in their hearts. So Paul talked about outside. Today he's going to show us what it looks like to live a gospel-worthy life inside the church. Today, Paul is going to give us God's demands for us as we live in close proximity with other Christians in his body. There is no social distancing in the body of Jesus Christ. And because of that, sparks can fly. Things worse than the coronavirus can come, being disunity and other things. One preacher I read titled this in the negative. Paul is speaking to us to, about how not to split a church, specifically your church. And what's interesting, I think, if you, if you start in chapter 2, you've read the book of Philippians, you know this is a very solid assembly based upon what Paul writes. I mean, Paul, there are no major doctrinal corrections in the letter, like in Galatians. He doesn't say, oh, foolish Philippians. 
There, there's no immorality mentioned like in Corinth. There are no false teachers rebuked like in, like in Ephesus. The, the church is noted for its gracious giving. And the Philippians, I mean, you've probably heard the, the simplified theme of the book is it's the joyful epistle. However, as one writer said, there is something deadly lurking in the weeds of this, of this church. It's the serpent of disunity. And Paul identifies it so they can, they can kill it. In chapter 4, verse 2, Paul urges two ladies in particular in the, in the church. I've seen men do the same thing, but here, two women... Judea and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. And he asked the church to help them do that. And before Paul ever gets there, he gives us helps and them helps on the basis for that, that unity. We're not told the specific issue that they were disputing over, but, but that doesn't matter because disagreement always arises from the, from the same place. The, the topic of disagreement in the church is never the, the issue in, in disharmony. That's, that's never the, the main issue. It's spiritual adultery that has turned our heart to another lover other than Christ. It's never really the color of the carpet or the, or the song sung or the, or the secondary interpretive matter that brings discord. It's, it's always personal wants and personal desires and, and personal prominence. And all of those rise above our loyalty to Jesus Christ and to His, His church. You can read James chapter 4 and learn all about that. The viper of division is dangerous because it, it bites and tears at the very tissue that, that binds us together. It, its poison causes necrosis of the, of the gospel in our heart. And, and the antivenom that Paul gives is a deliberate gaze upon the gospel of Christ, the work of Jesus. And that's what he does here in these, this very first verse. In fact, all of Paul's exhortations in this passage, from, from verse 27 in chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, 18, they're immersed in one thing, our relationship to Jesus Christ because of His work in the, in the gospel. A remembrance of His work, Paul says, is the, is the epipen for division that, that Paul places in the church's first aid kit. It, it will protect the church from a carnal reaction that, that closes off the windpipe of, of fellowship whenever it, whenever it takes hold. You, your brothers and sisters at Timberlake, Judea, Syntyche, and Paul are all followers of the, of the same gospel. We've all been made to drink from the, from the same grace-filled well. And on that basis, Paul issues these gospel-centered exhortations which are applicable to to all Christians and applied specifically to one local church and this morning to, to ours. Now, let me say quickly, uh, the beauty of exposition is we just come to the next passage. But I'll just say for you, I know of no division in the body of Christ at Timberlake and I praise the Lord from that. But I'm also not, not naive enough to believe that there, there may not be something lurking in the background or something that could not creep up because we're sinners and because the Bible addresses these things, tells us to, to be on guard for them. 
Well, these four verses that we read, they they actually have two parts. We're only going to cover the first one this morning. If you look at Philippians 2, verse 1, Paul gives the motivations for unity. And that's what we're going to see today. It's the why that we should strive for unity, the motivations. And then then in verse 2, Paul defines what this unity looks like. And that carries through verse verse, verse 4. We'll look at that next time. So if you look at verses 1 and 2 at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 2, Paul gives us four motivations to seek unity in the church. And they are because there's an encouragement in Christ's work, because there's consolation in God's love, because there's fellowship and affection in the Spirit's ministry, and because there is incentive in your brother's good. Four motivations to seek unity in the church. Let's look at the The first one, the first motivation that Paul gives to seek unity in the church is because there is encouragement in Christ's work. Look, if you would, at verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit intent on one purpose. And then verse 3, he turns it to the negative. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. Now I want you to notice that verse 1, the link here, it it links to a previous connection. Therefore, it's the the, the coupling mechanism like between two boxcars. The exhortation actually starts back in verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, where he said, be of one spirit, one mind, striving to, together. He told us in that section when we looked last time about a gospel-worthy life. We have a common enemy. We stand against in opposition. We have a common purpose. We strive for the gospel. We have a common privilege to we engage in association for Christ. Salvation and suffering, he talked about that. They have the same DNA That DNA is is we've been made partakers of Christ. They're a gift to us. Faith is a gift, and so is our suffering. They both come from from being associated with Christ. And that's what he says at the end of chapter 1. Now Paul focuses his motivations on the body of Christ. Unity is for its benefit and Christ's blessing. And beginning in verse uh, 1, Therefore... Now let me turn all that around and focus on the church. And, and the, the steering wheel that actually drives this entire sentence, uh, this in, these four verses, is found in verse 2. Make my joy complete, that's the command. Here's the steering wheel. By being the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul's goal is one-souled unity in the church, in the true church. One-souled unity in the truth. Not a 500-pound theological marshmallow, which you sing kumbaya, nothing. There is no substance. There's no structural steel. There's the faith once delivered unto the saints. And you believe that, just like the apostles believe that, just like it's in the Bible, and you're unified in that. And Christ, His work, is testified in the written word. The living word is revealed in the written word. And He urges that with this imperative to make His joy complete. We'll dig into that when we get there. But before He ever gives the steering wheel, he points to the engine. He says, listen to the engine run. And he initiates verse 1 with four clauses that begin with the word if. If there is any consolation in Christ. If there is any 
uh, encouragement of love or comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. They are all what's called first-class conditional clauses, which means they're expressing certainties, not possibilities for believers. These are not like maybe these are true, but these are realities for, for every believer. They're not like maybe these are true, but they're realities. That's why some of your translations may say since there is and, and because there is. That's totally accurate. Paul says these things are certain. They're, they're, they're the motives to strive for unity. These things have happened. Because these things happen, then I, I give you this command to make my joy complete. And, and what is that? What does that look like? You, you strive together for this, for this unity. Paul is detailing a list of spiritual motivations before he gives this command. Because every believer has experienced these things. Therefore, every believer can be exhorted to be of the same, the same mind. Or, or let me say it another way. You don't have a past because of your circumstances to avoid God's command for unity. There's no offense great enough, no tradition good enough, no reason valid enough to divide God's church. None. Not one. And if Christ has done anything for you, then that should motivate you. And he's done plenty, hasn't he? I think what was interesting to me as I studied this passage is, is there are no threats here. There's no promises of judgment if you, you, you don't. No warning of losing blessings, although both of those are, would be very valid. Be judged if you divide God's church. You could lose blessing if you do that. It'd be very valid. But there's none of that. There's just encouragements based on what Christ has done for us. It's an appeal with a basis. And that basis is what the Lord Jesus has done for, for you. And the first appeal is because Christ came near to you in His saving work. Look if you would at this first clause in verse 1. If there is any consolation of love, before he gets there, he says, is there, if there is any, any encouragement in Christ. If there is any encouragement in Christ. The word encouragement is the word paraclete, often used for the Holy Spirit. I mean, you've heard that before. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. He's our helper. He's the one who tenderly comes alongside and helps us. The focus is drawing near in close proximity. That's the idea. To assist. Paul now uses that word for Jesus. And how he has done that in our salvation. Since we have this, this paraclete work of Christ for, for us. Since our Savior comes alongside us in our sinful state and literally speaks comfort in the ears of our, our hearts, that is a reason, a motivation that we should pursue the unity that he desires. Now think about that. Think about this motivation. The Lord Jesus not only comes near to sinners, He comes alongside them in intimate aid. The Lord of glory, the one of sinless perfection, comes near 
to us. And Paul says, if there is any encouragement in that, then will we not live in a way that is pleasing to Him? That's the idea here. Paul's just reminded us of our salvation. It's a gift and, and suffering because of our association with Christ. That's what he says back in verse 29. It has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. And the emphasis is your association with Christ because of His grace gift to you. You were granted faith for Christ's sake to be His reward. You were, you were guaranteed suffering because of, of your faith in Him. That's for His sake. And now Paul says you gain encouragement from how that took place through the Lord's condescending work where He drew near to you to help in your time of need. Two unfathomable graces, faith in your union with Him. Can you be reminded of all that He's done? He's coming alongside us, His help, His, His love, His grace toward your sin, and then not grant Him the, the simplest request of, of unity in the church that He loves? It's like Paul is saying, can you care nothing about something so precious to him, his bride and his body after he has, has done something so, so significant for you? Will you not love what he loves? And again, Paul doesn't threaten judgment if you don't, although he could. He doesn't say if, if you, you don't do this, you're going to be put out of the church. Or, as I said, although that would be deserved, he appeals to us on the basis of our Savior's work. It, he says, does that not create gratitude in your heart? And, and if you will spurn that, that work of the Lord and the gratitude, does that not make you an ingrate of the, of the highest order? Let me say it this way. You will be motivated to obey Christ equal to your realization of what He has done for you. And I understand that's a battle. We read verses all of the time that, that don't land with the, with the, you know, the, the hammer thud that they, that they should. But think about the times when you're most motivated to obey Christ. It's not when your, your heart is struck with fear of, of judgment. You, you're, you don't want to be judged. When you are, as a Christian, when you're most motivated to, to obey Christ, it's, it's when you're most aware... Of the, of the depth of your sin and the grace of your Lord, the forgiveness that he has, he has granted to you. Low awareness of what he's done equals low motivation. Low thankfulness for the gospel equals low obedience. And that's why we must preach the gospel to ourselves even as Christians. And so, so we remember, we'll remember what he's done because it's easy to forget. And then we're motivated to obey him out of love. And unity for his church is what he desires here. In John 17, at our the Lord's great high priestly prayer, the last recorded prayer, major prayer, he prays for unity. John 17, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you, you sent me. Unity is a witness. 
And that's the Lord's heart, oneness. Like His with the Father. Since you've received so much encouragement and grace from Christ from the very moment of your salvation, Paul says, that should motivate you to preserve the one thing that is most precious to Christ, His church. But when you don't, you're not violating some doctrine or, or liturgy. You're sinning against a person. Sin is always relational. You don't sin against a system. You sin against your Savior. I think that's probably what hit me the most about this passage. What was most interesting was that it was all encouragements and not, and not fear of judgment. But I think what most convicted me and pierced me about this passage was that sin is relational. Being reminded that when I sin, I sin against a person. The sin of self-seeking desires in the church is not a sin against the church or a sin in general. Sin is not about doctrines like you're violating the dogma of unity. Sins are not even about the local church, although they devastate them. Sins are against the person of Christ. It's a personal sin against Him. That's why it's so serious. And Paul makes an appeal not to sin against the person of Christ by holding up what He has done for you right alongside that appeal. I mean, you have a, uh, an example here of what He has done. You're looking that square in the face when, when He's appealing to you not to do this. Are you not so moved by His compassionate outpouring of grace toward you that, that you're moved, not moved to, to obey that? If not, it's a sin of ingratitude. It's the ultimate act of thanklessness toward the one who poured out His life for you. John MacArthur said a person does this Someone who is willing to take all that God has to offer, but then turn around and say, I will not give you what you desire. I want mercy, I want grace, I want forgiveness, I want answered prayer, I want the help of your spirit, but I won't give anything in return. That's an ingrate. Has the Lord done much for you? He has, hasn't he? Then strive for unity in his church. Put away the petty concerns that you have with another. Well, that's not all he's done, is it? He gives us another one here. The second motivation to seek unity is because there's consolation in God's love. There's consolation in God's love. Look at verse 1 again. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of, of love, encouragement from Christ's condescending work, he, he drew near to your aid to help. And now comfort from God's love. Paul uses a word for consolation or comfort, and then he modifies the very familiar New Testament word for love, agape. And the pronoun here refers back to, back to Christ in the previous clause. He's reminding us of Christ's love for us. Now let that sink in for a minute. God loves you. 
I'm afraid that whenever we hear that phrase, we, we hear it in the, in the wrong key. We, we, we hear it as if it's something deserved. We think that, that, God, that God somehow should do that. He should love us. But that's not the case. But God loves you because he is love. And that should comfort you. Paul's providing the scriptural basis for the song that we sing in Sunday school. Jesus loves me, this I know. And here is where the Bible tells me so. Right here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. You and I, before we ever had a single inkling of care for God, He loved us with an eternal love. A love that has no beginning or end. A love that has no basis in us or what we deserve. A love that is unchanging, eternal, and effective. It was a love that was expressed in the greatest possible way on the cross for us and in the worst possible experience for him. Paul will actually describe the humility of that work that's that's coming in verses 5 through 7. But here he says that love speaks to us in a friendly way and it woos us in in comfort because there is consolation of love, because you're consoled by the fact that, that while you are, even though you are a sinner, God loves you in Jesus Christ. He expressed that through, through his work. The reformer Martin Luther, before he was saved, saw God only through the attribute of his justice, his holiness, his justice. Roland Bainton's book, Here I Stand, probably one of the, the classic works on, on Luther. It was the first book I ever read about church history. It gripped me. Martin Luther saw God only through, through one lens. It was a lens that was, that was provided for him through, through his Catholicism. And he knew God was holy and just because of his Catholicism. He knew he was a sinner that had been instilled in him. He had a conscience also given by God. And so he understood that, that what he could expect from God was, was judgment. And, and he read the Bible. He read about the righteousness of God. And, and what he heard was, was all this, this single note of, of justice and, and wrath. And, and this reality was oppressive to him. He spent his life trying to, trying to, to, to get that tune out of, his, out of his head, finding relief in confessions and penance, even beatings. He would whip himself to, to, to the point of, of being bloody, trying to subject his flesh. And all of this made God loathsome to him. But in Luther's own testimony... After he'd done some study in the Psalter, he came upon the book of Romans, and in Romans 117, he, he read, The just shall live by faith. Those that have been justified by God as an act of God, they're made righteous by, by faith. They're made righteous by, by faith in, 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 the, in the work of Christ. God's the one that justifies them. He declares them and declares you, if you're a believer, as, as someone who is righteous even though you're not. And he does that through the, 
through the righteousness of Christ. It's alien righteousness, righteousness that you don't have, righteousness outside of you that, that you, get, you, you get connected to through faith, your faith believing upon, upon that, that work that Jesus alone has done and that comes to you through God's grace alone because He loves you. And from that prayerful study, Luther said, he began to understand that the righteousness of God is, is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and I entered into paradise itself through, through open gates. There a, a total other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scripture from memory and I also found in, in other terms a, a, an analogy as the work of God, that is what God does in us, the power of God with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred which, with which I had before. Thus that place in Paul was for me truly the gate of paradise. Listen, the gospel is not that you're a sinner and that you broke God's law. You are and you have, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is not that you're going to face judgment whenever you die. You are. You're going to stand before a holy God in your sin. The gospel is that the God of heaven in Jesus Christ loves you and in that love, he went to the cross and accomplished your salvation and offers you the forgiveness of, of sin by faith alone and grace alone. And even now, he still loves you and will raise you to live with him on, forever on the last day. And after you embrace that, you learn that he loved you before the foundation of the, of the world. That's good news. <laughs> And that should bring us comfort, Paul says. It should bolster us, admonish us, because we're loved by Christ. You may have seen in the movies the guy that comes to the gate and the guards are on the inside and there's this little box. They open the thing and, you know, who goes there or really what they're saying is friend or foe. Well, God says that you come to his gate as his foe. And the Lord Jesus was a friend to us in his love and made us friends of God by, by opening the gate through the cross. You come to God as his, as his enemy and he received you as a friend because Christ stood in your place. And Spurgeon says that, is a, that specifically is a Christian privilege to recognize this love. Spurgeon said an ungodly man may know something about Christ's love. He may believe in the fact of it. He may perceive something of the theory of it. He may even be able to follow believers in certain expressions of its enjoyments. But to know the love itself, to taste its sweets, to realize personally experimentally and vitally that the love of Christ is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost is the privilege of the child of God and the child of God alone. This is the secure enclosure into which the stranger cannot enter. 
This is the garden of the Lord, so well protected by walls and hedges that no wild boar of the wood can enter. (laughs) Only the redeemed of the Lord can walk there. They and only they may pluck its fruits and content themselves with the delight thereof. And Paul says, as you pluck the fruits of the love of God, and since you have known this comforting love, will you not love one another? Can you take that kind of love from Christ and then not love what is most precious to Him, His church? There's more. Let me show you the third motivation. It brings in the Spirit here. Look at verse 1 again. If there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. The third motivation to seek unity is because there's, a, there's fellowship and affection in the Spirit's ministry. Paul now brings in the second person, or the, the, not the second person of the Trinity, the second part of the Trinity, but he'll get, cover all three by the time he's done. The first encouragement is in Christ, Christ's work, the second in the love of Christ, and here it's the fellowship of the Spirit. And the word for fellowship is a word that you've heard before, koinonia. We even have a Sunday school class named after that that church. Brother Govinda's church, Koinonia Potten Fellowship. It means a common sharing or partnership, a a communion with, with others. John MacArthur said you get unity from truth and in a person. You you don't get unity by by shared emotion or experience. Unity is not from some external force constraining us together like like Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's about the the world. Don't Don't be conformed to the world. The idea of something external forcing you into a mold. That's not not this, this fellowship that comes from the Spirit. It's not like a, like a lodge membership or a social strata that, that, that brings you together and that you, you connect to it in, in that way. It's an internal drawing, like, like a magnetic pull that's produced by the Holy Spirit. And Paul says the Spirit binds us. He submerges us. He makes us one solution from a mixture of, of, of sinners. He, he doesn't conform us into into a form like the world. He doesn't leave us parts. He makes us one body. He transforms us into a fellowshipping unit. And because of that, we have fellowship. We have, we have koinonia. The unbelieving world has nothing like that to unify them. I mean, if you look around and, and, and you find them rejoicing and, and making over such trivial matters, and, and you think, that's just so base, so, so low. It's because they have nothing else. They don't have eternity to, to look toward. And they don't have the, the, the fellowship in, in the heart that has this similar purpose of the gospel. The only thing that they have in common is their, is their lust, their, or temporal things like softball teams or book clubs. There's nothing wrong with either one of those. But it's not the same thing that Paul talks about here. 
Unbelievers will find their earthly fellowship in similar sins. They may be drinking buzzies or carousing partners or they may develop elaborate hobbies and organizations to support them. But all of these things are temporary and they have no lasting significance. They're counterfeits to what man truly needs. And what you and I have through the Spirit, you have this fellowship. Paul says you have a common sharing because you have common ownership. We're all purchased by Jesus Christ and the Spirit is the evidence of that. The Spirit is the down payment until Christ returns for His purpose possessions. The Spirit is, is what you have in common and what creates your commonality. Ephesians 1, Having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of, of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession, your God's possession, to the praise of His glory. That's why you were saved. So if we own nothing ourselves, if we're only part of the church because of, of Christ coming alongside us as sinners and, and loving us even though we didn't deserve that, that, that kind of love, and now He's implanted His Spirit in us, placed us in, in, in His body, the body that, that He owns and us individually that He owns, then why do we act as if we own everything? Or if we have our own agenda and not Christ? Paul says we have fellowship, not ownership. Can you divide if you understand you have no rank and no ownership and Christ himself is the one who has made you one? There are two clauses here under this verse, for this, both attributed to the Spirit. Look at verse 1 again. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, any affection and compassion, and that too comes from the Spirit, I believe, If the love that he's talking about in, of, of, of God, if there's any consolation of love, if that's a, a, you know, a cognitive thing, a decisive intent, God loved you. It was based on his purpose. He purposed to love you because he is love, not because he had some warm feelings for you. Here is the warm feeling word. This word, any affection. It's a longing or a feeling. It's, it's, affection, it's affectionate. It, and to intensify the word, Paul, Paul adds compassion. It's tender affection, tender compassion. The inward bowels of, or, or heart, meaning strong emotions, coupled with compassion. It's a display of concern for, for another. Paul says the Spirit has strong affection and concern for us. You can sense that. You can see it in his work. That's why he can be grieved. And there's nothing that grieves the Spirit more than disunity or disharmony. The Spirit has, has fondness for us as believers. He indwells us and he indwells the church. Paul, again, is focused on, focusing on the personal, the relational aspect of, of your your association to God. The Spirit is not some impersonal force or some mystical energy that you sling around or you call in. He's a person. He has, he has affections. He has tender mercies. 
And Paul says his affection is for you. Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the, for the day of re- redemption. I mean, even in that verse, you hear you're sealed by Him under the, under the day of redemption. It, it, it has to do with your salvation, the encouragement. He's the, he's the deposit. You're looking forward to the day of redemption. He's, he's the little taste of, of the presence of Christ that lives in you. Can, can you grieve Him? Because he has tender feelings for you. Do you have affection for Christ? Do you love him? Not only with your mind and with your choices, but but with your heart, with your inward emotions. Is your Christianity just some wooden external religious system that you you operate your life by? Or, Or is there inward affection? Is the love for God resident in your heart. What are you willing to do for God out of that out of that affection? What desire do you have to do for God? Is there anything that you would withhold from him? Would you go to the ends of the earth for the gospel? Will you give and sacrifice your goods? Will, will you buffet your body to avoid sin? Will you give up things that, that may be even lawful for you because they're not profitable and you wouldn't want anything to, to harm your testimony for Jesus? You might think of th- all of those types of things, and, and those are wonderful things, but, but Christ says what is most precious to Him is His church. He shed His blood for her. It's his bride. Are you willing to then treat the church in the same way that Jesus does? Jesus says, what do I want from you? I want you to preserve the unity in my own body and do nothing to harm it and not allow your sinful desires or your petty offenses to rise to the point to harm it. That is a sin much greater than, than failing at giving or, or falling into immorality. And because Christ matters so much to us, so do our brothers and sisters. Maybe this final motivation. It's... It's found at the beginning of verse 2. Look, if you would, at verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Now, that's the command. That's the imperative of this passage. Make my joy complete. And then he commands them to do something specific by being of the same, same mind. It's, Paul ends here, I think, with, with what you could call a final motivation. And that's, that's the filling up of his own joy. I mean, he appeals to them after it's not one of these four conditional clauses, but it's a motivation nonetheless. Paul says, make my joy complete. You see that? The joy of close friendship inspires Paul to to make this request. Make my joy complete. He uses three phrases to describe what will complete his joy, and we'll look at that next time. But here he appeals to them to pursue unity. I understand why he says this as a pastor. I do. I have a love and a longing 
for the church of Jesus Christ for you, for the well-being of this church. It's, it's granted by God, and it grows. The more that I, I lay down my life for, for Him, and that's what Paul's a, a appealing on. That's the basis. Not so he can be happy, but because he has a Christ-granted love for the church. That's a far cry between hurting me and hurting Christ or hurting Paul and, and hurting the Lord Jesus, but it's a motive nonetheless. Paul says, are, are you motivated by your brother's good, their joy, what they think? I mean, to a certain degree, you can be, you can be overly motivated by that, which is why he starts with these four encouragements all focused on God, Four focused on God, one focused on your, your brothers, because we have a tendency to exalt our brothers over, over Christ. You have to be careful with this motivation toward, toward the brothers and sisters because you can be so motivated by how others feel that you can ne neglect the Lord's feelings. We can't do this or that because old Joe built this place and we can't change it. It'll dishonor him. Well, what about dishonoring Christ? That's what Paul says. I was in a church once that made a decision, not based on what was right in the situation, but how it made another selfish and sinful member feel. You should evaluate the situation, prefer others if you can, shouldn't trample on others' feelings, but, but others should not equal Christ or the unity of His church. You should subordinate your desires to, to the body. And the Philippian church is greatly concerned about the Apostle Paul. They sent Epaphroditus with a gift. They want to know about his well-being. Paul's even writing to them to tell them that, that he's fine. He says his situation has turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He's joyful in his circumstances because of the gospel. But now he says, if you really want to make my joy complete, if you want to fill it up, then be unified. Be of the same mind. Paul says... Greater than prayer for his deliverance. Greater than help, the help of a fellow servant. That, greater than the financial support that they sent. He wanted to hear that they were of the same mind. They were unified together in the gospel as a church. Why does he desire that? Because his Savior does. Because he's taking everything he just appealed to them in his own heart. I mean, can you write something like this if you're the Apostle Paul? If there's any encouragement in Christ and you're thinking about how Christ came near to you in His saving work, can, can you write, is there any consolation of His love and then begin to meditate on the love of God and for, for you as a sinner and the Apostle Paul? I'm sure his mind went back to, to all of the things that he did to, to the church. He's appealing to not destroy the church and he's thinking about before he was saved how he, how he tore it down. You think Paul can write about the fellowship of the Spirit, the affection and compassion? And then that not be on his heart? It's on his heart. And because of that, that his joy is equal in Christ's joy. And Christ longs for unity in his church. And now we're back to where we started. Make my joy complete, Paul says. Fill it up. Because you have unimaginable motivations to seek the unity in the church. 
because there is encouragement in Christ's work, there's consolation in his love, fellowship and affection in the Spirit's ministry, and you have the incentive of, of your other brother's good. Harming the church not only is a sin against Christ first and foremost, but it hurts other people. Will you take all that the Lord has given you and then not give him what is most precious in his sight, unity in his church? I urge you as Paul does, be of the same mind with one another, that you live in harmony, like the exhortation to those women, that you put aside anything that, that divides you. And when you're tempted to get distracted from that, you'll come back to the gospel and what Paul says here. Because there is a real enemy out there. Paul talked about it at the end of chapter 1. And when you don't see that real enemy or focus on the gospel, you can fight one another. And that grieves the heart of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your truth, how convicting this passage was to me. Father, before you, I, I know how easy it is to be hurt and how easy it is for that to fester in, in the heart. And um, Lord, I, I don't want anything in my heart between me and you before anyone else. It's so small compared to what, what I have done against you. Thank you for reminding me that not only that, having bitterness or unforgiveness in my heart, but that any sin is relational. It's a sin against you. I pray that you would drive the truth home in the hearts of, of those who, who need it that are listening as well. And I thank you for your great condescension and your great love and your great compassion. I give my life to you even again this day. Use me, spend me for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.